0: might turn in your New Testaments to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. For the lesson of this hour, every time we leave James, we'll come back to it. So you might even put a marker there. James chapter 1 is where we'll begin, though. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. As Harry mentioned, we have several visitors in our midst, and that's always encouraging. Uh, some have traveled from a good way, so we want you to know uh, how pleased we are to see you and how much of an encouragement you've been to us. We hope that we've been the same, and we hope that you'll be safe going back to your destination. Before we get into the lesson that I've prepared for this hour, I just wanted to take a brief moment to amen Harry's lesson, and as a youth myself, encourage all the other ones that can be described as such, all of you young people. Speaking to myself again, if you didn't hear that sermon, go listen to it. If you've listened to it, if you heard it in the first hour, listen to it again and again and again and realize that as preachers, we're not just filling the time. What we do is intentional. Um, So always examine yourself when the word is taught. Uh, Harry made very clear that that was an intentional lesson. And so it's not something to just be heard and then forgotten and thrown away. It means so much that you would take those principles to heart and that you would live them and exhibit them in your daily life. It's, It's time to grow up now. It's time to mature in the faith now. Uh, you had in our class this morning, J.T. talk about, in First Corinthians 16, Timothy, and how Paul said to the Corinthians, don't despise him as a youth. Well, you can't control what others are going to do, but you can control who you are. Don't give anyone any ammo when you go out and you start living life on your own and having to make decisions. You apply those principles to make sure that you're living your own faith, and that you're glorifying God in everything that you do. I appreciated that lesson so much and just wanted to give it a hearty amen. In James chapter 1 and verse 26, we read a familiar text. And what James says here as he progresses through his thoughts is that if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue that deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless I suppose that it's always been the case. There's nothing new under the sun. I can remember several years ago seeing a YouTube video being shared around um, where this pastor, probably from some community church, was talking about how we should view our relationship with God in this way, Jesus over religion. And it was much to do with religion being a bad word, a bad concept, that we need to be spiritual people, but religious is always something that is looked down upon in the scriptures. Obviously a misunderstanding of what being a Pharisee even is, so on and so forth. Religion isn't a bad word. The people that think that it is are ignorant and they need to look into God's word a little more carefully. Don't let anyone ever tell you that being religious is a bad thing. Religion here in this passage is the translation of the Greek word threskaya And it simply means expression of devotion to transcendent beings. The transcendent being that we express our devotion to is God the Father, Jehovah, and Jesus our Lord and the Holy Spirit who's revealed the word to us. Religion is never looked down on in scripture. False religion is. And that's this point in verse 26. There is a religion that is useless here because of an unbridled tongue. We'll discuss a little bit more about what that means this morning. And then, of course, there are false religions throughout the land that worship God in ways that he does not desire and that he certainly does not require. And those religions are useless as well. But be impressed by what he says in verse 27. There is a pure and undefiled religion. And he's not saying that visiting orphans and widows in the trouble and keeping oneself unspotted from the world are the only two facets of pure and undefiled religion. He's just drawing a contrast here. And he's trying to get these readers to recognize some of their responsibility, but make no mistake about it, there is a pure and undefiled religion. The question is, is that the religion that you're following after? And what I want us to do, before getting into the lesson further, is to challenge each one of us this morning to not look at the things that we're discussing in this lesson, particularly in the Epistle of James, as it pertains to thoughts that might come with Uh, trying to refute the errors in denominationalism. Because James isn't writing to uh, a time, in a time, where there is denominationalism. He's not writing to to a denomination saying that you're practicing useless religion. He's writing to Christians. The twelve tribes scattered abroad, speaking of spiritual Israel and, and those who certainly had a Jewish background. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to you and he's writing to me. We go to James 2 all the time to show that we're not saved by faith only. But I want to tell you that's not what he's saying in James chapter 2. He's writing to Christians who know there's got to be more than faith. And they've convinced themselves that they are accomplishing what the gospel requires. And he says, no, you're not. You are actually exhibiting a faith that is dead because it's devoid of works. And not just entirely like you think that you believe in Jesus so you don't have to do anything but they were being inconsistent with it. And he's telling them to keep the law completely. You you talk about fulfilling the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and and you fulfill that with this rich guy that comes in, but your faith is dead, not because you're not doing anything, but because you're incomplete in it. And That's what he talks about with Abraham's faith. It was made perfect or complete. You've got to do the same to the poor man. He who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. You've got to keep the whole law. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to Baptists. And he's not giving us necessarily, specifically, ammo to refute the Baptists. So we know how Scripture works, and that's how we refute the gainsayer. He's talking to me, and he's talking to you. And so he is in verse 26. Are we practicing useless religion? I want to tell you that if we are guilty of what James is saying, and having an unbridled tongue, then certainly we are. More so than even that, though, don't think of this unbridled tongue as simply uh, an individual who curses like a sailor who, who always gossips and slanders his or her brethren or people in the world because that's, that's included, but that's not the only thing that we're talking about here. And hopefully I can help us to understand that furthermore in the context. I want us to notice the text in its context, specifically here in chapter 1. There in verse 26 is one of three times that James deals with self-deception in this chapter. He deals with it firstly in verse 16 when he speaks about what precedes that, and we'll see it as as temptation and where that comes from. Don't deceive yourself. It doesn't come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Then he goes on in verse 22 to talk about self-deception. With an individual who hears the word, but he doesn't do it and he deceives himself thinking that he's right with God. And then in our text, in James 1 and verse 26, you've got a person who's practicing religion. Their tongue, though, is unbridled. It's not controlled. They're saying things they ought not and therefore doing things they ought not and deceiving themselves into thinking that they're still right with God. I want to deal with each one of these briefly. I want us to notice that first one in verse 16. He says, do not deceive Yourself, uh, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. the concept is self-deception. He goes on and says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and shadow of turning. He's doing more than just telling us God gives us good things. And every good thing you have, you can bank on it that it came from God, and we need to thank Him for that. That's true. That's not the context. He's drawing a contrast to what He has said before with what is actually The truth. And what we see in verse 13 is this discussion of temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift comes from God. Is temptation to do evil good? Absolutely not. Don't charge God with that evil. But who would think such a thing as a Christian? Again, this is written to Christians. It's written to me and it's written to you. And that means that it applies to us as we stand right now. It means something to me as I'm reading this passage. And a lot of times we give the example of perhaps a homosexual, and I'm I'm sure, no doubt, that there have been Brethren who have fallen into this vice and have charged God with this evil, saying, He made me this way, I can't help it. No, temptation doesn't come from Him. I think that's a proper application of this verse. But I want to tell you that it can be more subtle than that. And charging God with a sense of direction that can obviously be exposed as contrary to His will, nevertheless, a Christian saying, I'm following God in doing this. No, you're not. That's what he's saying. This direction, temptation is a way. You're drawn away. You're not just drawn away to something. You're drawn away from something. You're being drawn away from the will of the Lord. That obviously doesn't come from him. And I don't think that this section is segmented as we often look at it. I think that there's a continual thought throughout here. And I believe this idea starts back in the first few verses. We know he's speaking about trials and how to deal with them. And he gives this instruction in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think we can take for granted here this morning at least that the wisdom that God will ever impart to us Comes simply through His Word. He's not saying pray for it and you'll wake up and be wiser. He's saying pray for it, put your nose in the good book, and you had better believe that God will give you the wisdom that He has supplied therein. But notice what he goes on to say right after that. Pray for wisdom. We know we have to study for it. He says, but let him ask in faith. And we can understand what he means by that with the negative, the contrast with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I know we're immediately inclined to think that asking God for anything, especially wisdom in this context, in faith, means that I believe God wants to give it to me and He has the power to give it to me. And that would certainly be a good point to make. But you see, it's even more subtle than that in this text, I believe. Because in verse 7 he tells them, don't suppose you'll receive anything. He's dealing with people who are praying to God for wisdom and they are expecting to receive it. And James is saying you shouldn't expect to receive it if you're asking in this way. Why would I pray to God to give me something if already in my mind I don't even have the faith that He's a being with the power to give it? That may be the case in some circumstances. But as a Christian who's reading the Word, who's associating with brethren who's worshiping God on a regular basis, I don't believe that that's really exactly what he's talking about here. And I think we can understand it with these two terms. He speaks about this asking in faith in contrast to doubting, but then he helps us understand the doubting with the term double-minded. And it's used two times in the New Testament, here in James 1 and also in James 4 and in verse 8. The term is dipsukos, and it means two-souled, from deep, twice, and suke, a soul. Two souls, or two minds. In chapter 4, this is how he uses it. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, in the context of them committing spiritual adultery by riding the fence and keeping one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord's kingdom. He says you're deceiving yourself in doing that. God wants your singularity of focus, which was the point Harry made in his sermon, about loyalty and apparently that Hebrew word meaning a kind of singleness, not division. And so this idea of double-mindedness comes with the concept of trying to be right with God and holding on to the vestiges of our prior life, holding on to sin. No wonder in chapter 1 and verse 21 he says, put aside this. Filthiness and overflow of wickedness. You cannot hold on to the past, sin, and serve God acceptably. You're double-minded. And a double-minded man, he's unstable in all his ways. Which I think can help us to understand what the doubting is. Is it, is it doubting that God exists? Is it doubting that God hears our prayers? Is it doubting that God has the power to answer our prayers? It may be, but I think that it can be more subtle than that, and the context bears it out. Doubting is the Greek word diakrino. In the middle voice, which is what we see here in James chapter 1, Vine says it means to separate oneself from or to contend with. Now you think about that in the context proceeds on to verse 13, where temptation is something which takes us the opposite direction of God's word, and you've got Christians who are being inclined to say that though the, the way I'm going cannot be verified as being from God, I am claiming it is from God. Don't charge God with that wrong. They know they've got to go to God for direction. Don't we all? And they know they need to pray to God for wisdom, study His Word. But here's the problem. They're already double-minded. They're already doubting whether they actually want what God would give them. Haven't you ever done that, especially as a youth? Going up to your parents and you've already made up your mind. You, you kind of know what they've said in the past. They, you know what they expect of you and you ask to do something. You ask permission and, and you know that you need to go to them because I answered a mom and dad, but I've already made up my mind. I've done that to my dad. You know what he told me? Why should I give you my advice? Why should I tell you what to do when you've already made up your mind? I believe there's a degree of that here in James 1. We know we have to go to the Word of God. But if we're already trying to make up our mind prior to seeing what God says, when we see what He says, you think we're going to be convinced of it and follow it? But we're not certainly going to just leave the church. What we're going to do is try to justify what we're doing as being from God. I have no command, example, and necessary inference to to validate, to show I have authority for doing what I'm about to do, or currently in the process of doing but I know that I need to be following God in His Word, so I'm going to weave some web of deception for my brethren and for myself to ease my conscience and think that I'm, I'm okay with God. Don't charge God with that. Something that cannot be verified by God's will does not come from God's will and is certainly not something that leads to righteousness. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. An individual who practices religion like that is unstable in all his ways. One time he'll be following God's will because it's convenient for him. The other time he's going to reason himself out of it. The origin of temptation is our own desires. We cannot approach God's will having our mind already made up and then act as if it's coming from him. Something that relates to that, he says in verse 22, is this idea of hearing God's word but not doing God's word. But he builds up to it. He says in verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. What, what are we being swift to hear? You know, we might use this text to talk about how we need to communicate well together. So when someone's talking, you need to just be quiet until they're finished. Certainly, there's wisdom in that. Verse 18, though, makes the point that part of the good that comes from God is His Word. He brought us forth by the Word of Truth. What are we swift to hear? The Word of Truth in the context. You, you you, be quiet. Let God speak. Don't get angry when you're listening to Him. Certainly just don't fly off the handle and talk about things and convince yourself that this is God's will. Let Him speak. Be silent before Him. And then receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. He's not using... A, a, figure of speech rhetorical device where he, he speaks of something that hasn't yet happened as though it already had. He's talking to people who have obeyed the truth. So this word has been implanted, but he's telling them that as a Christian, the way you live is continually receiving God's word. And evidently they had gotten to a point where they needed to be exhorted to do so. Some were not listening to God's word anymore. He says, you need to be quiet and listen to God's word and you need to put away your sin, and you need to do what God's Word says. But some people, knowing that that's what is expected of them, were listening to God's Word, but they were stopping there. They weren't doing God's Word. And what they were doing is essentially saying, because I show up to church every Sunday and hear the two sermons and hear the Bible lesson and get my Bible lesson done, though I'm not applying anything at all to my life, that's enough. And I'm good with God. I'm listening to him. The world isn't. I am. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And then he reaches this point in verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So let's look at this a little bit further. I want us to first contrast this word religion with something else we see in the New Testament. Again, this word religion is the Greek word thrayskaya, It means expression of devotion to transcendent beings. He speaks about that expression of devotion as being useless, evidently, because it's not what this transcendent being actually asked for. So keep that in mind and go to Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 23, where the Apostle Paul here says, these things, what are these things? He speaks about living in the world and subjecting yourself to regulations and these things having a concern with the perishing, with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So, so you're doing what you want to do and others want you to do, but you're not focusing on Christ, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Then he makes the application in verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Doesn't that fit our context in James 1? It has an appearance of wisdom. doesn't mean it's wisdom from God. It has an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. False humility and neglect of the body, uh, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That word only occurs here, athelothraeskia, and it means the way it's translated. It is self-imposed religion. Other translations, I believe, say will worship. This is the Art and Gingrich definition. It is self-made religion, do-it-yourself religion idiosyncratic religion that's the world we live in brethren but he's writing to brethren don't be following a religion that you have contrived in your mind we may think idolatry is dead it's not we make an idol out of our own desires many times and we shouldn't and we do that using the holy and inspired word of god of all things that's that's what he's dealing with here you've got religion that is pure and then you've got fake religion that is absolutely useless. And all centers in, in verse 26, on your tongue. And the one who is practicing religion and thinking he's right with God and his tongue is unbridled, uncontrolled, that religion is useless. Again, not simply slander, not simply profanity. Those, those could be proper applications. Look at the context. How is the tongue used in the context? I know he says tongue the first time in verse 26, and he'll expand the thought in chapter 3. We'll look at that in a minute. But in verse 13, is that not a use of the tongue? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Temptation doesn't come from him. If this is something contrary to his will, how dare you charge God with that way? Yet people do it all the time in the church. Where's your authority? Ah, we don't need authority for everything. Or, Or they just ramble on with these useless explanations, no no chapter, no verse. They're charging God with the direction that He never gave. They're charging God with temptation. That's, that's an unbridled tongue. Verse 19, replying against God. We've got brethren that do that as well. How dare you tell me that I'm in sin? Who are you mad at? You're mad at God. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me, God told His servants time and time again under the Old Testament keep on preaching cuz they're rejecting me. Verse 26, that's the unbridled tongue. The unbridled tongue looks like this. It's a Christian who knows I'm living to please God or at least want people to think that. So yeah, I'm praying I'm praying for wisdom. I've got a big decision coming up. I know that God is the one that I should appeal to. So you had better believe I'm telling everyone I've been praying about this. Please pray about it for me. I've been studying God's Word. Maybe they even look to their elders. Please give me some advice. I know where I need to go. And they make that claim. And maybe they're studying. But they're studying with a filter in their mind. And so what they're doing is they're reasoning themselves away from God's Word. Yes, I'm studying God's Word, but I'm doing it with ulterior motives i'm already double-minded i'm already vacillating i already want this i'm going to the scripture to justify it and if i do that my tongue is not going to be congruent with what i read in the word of god i'm going to be speaking strange things my my thoughts aren't subject to god's word because i'm double-minded and so my interpretation of god's word and the way i speak about god's will and the way i speak about my devotion to god that's not lining up at all and you know what happens when an individual's thoughts and his words are not lining up to the Scripture? Their actions aren't. And not that in the context? They are hearers of the Word, but they're not doing the Word. Not at all. I think chapter 3 unveils the curtain a little more. It pulls it back and gives us an understanding of the mechanism of the tongue and why it plays such an important role and just how deceptive Satan is in using our own selves Against each other and ourselves. I I know we know the context, so very briefly, he speaks about teachers. And that context follows throughout. We can make a general application of the tongue and its danger. But throughout chapter 3, that's the subject matter. Beginning in verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. The the judgment is greater. The more you talk, the more words you have to be judged by. So if you're going to teach, you better know what you're talking about. Then he talks about the danger of the tongue because of how influential it is, how much power it wields. He says, We all stumble in many things. He's not saying we sin all the time. He's just saying there are various categories of evil. There is every form of evil. There are so many different ways that we can falter. Everyone stumbles in word. You may struggle with alcohol. I've never struggled with that. But both of us struggle with our tongue. Everyone has this struggle to one degree or another. And he says, if anyone does not stumble inward, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. Not meaning flawless, meaning mature. If you're a mature Christian, you should be able to control your tongue and control your body. And then he gives these illustrations to show its power. He talks about bits being put in horses' mouths that they may obey us and turn their whole body. A a ship, although they're large and driven by fierce winds, they're turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. You ever thought about that? That's impressive. So the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. But I want us to understand something that he's not saying. Firstly, he's not saying the tongue is inherently evil. If we weren't learned of God's word and we weren't being consistent with it, we may read the rest of the passage and think, there you go, inherited depravity. My tongue is inherently evil. He's not saying that. He's warning them about the potential evil of the tongue. If it's unbridled, and there's a second point, he's not saying it can't be bridled. It can't be controlled. If anything, later on when he makes a comparison with wild beasts, he's using hyperbolic language. He's saying it is uncontrollable, but in verse 2 he said you can control it if you're mature. He's making a point. He's saying it is dangerous. Always be aware of the danger. But don't you forget about how powerful the Word of God is and the way it can transform lives and, yeah, transform speech. It can be bridled, but we always need to remind ourselves of the danger. How do you bridle it, though? How in the world am I supposed to keep from saying things that are evil, that are wrong? How can I keep from blessing God and cursing men who have been made in the similitude of God? Maybe we need to ask ourselves the question, can we? Yeah, we can. That's why he's writing this chapter. He's telling them, bridle your tongues or get out of the pulpit. And every Christian should grow to that maturity of bridling their tongues. How do we do it? What's the secret, if you will? Harry touched on it in a previous lesson from the lesson on loving life and seeing your days. One of it is refraining from speaking evil. And he talked about the heart in that lesson. That's the way you bridle your tongue. You see, the heart is the bridle of the tongue. And, and, and sometimes when I studied this passage, the way I studied it was, how do I keep from saying things at all? How do I just know to shut up when I need to shut up? He's not saying that. He's saying you, you still need to evangelize. You still need to teach the truth. You still need to teach your brethren. You still need to look in the mirror, and you still need to speak God's Word. He's saying how do I control it? You don't put a bit in a horse's mouth to stop the horse, but to take the horse where you want it to go, not where the horse wants to go. Same thing with a ship. Ships don't sit in the ocean. They move, and the rudder tells it where to go. So it is with the tongue. The heart controls how the tongue as an instrument of righteousness is used. There are two places in Matthew that I think really bring out this point in a wonderful way. In Matthew 12, when the Pharisees became guilty of denying the power of the Son of God as he cast out a demon by his own divine power, they blasphemed the Spirit of the Lord. That's the context. They're using their speech in a way that is not congruous with God's will and with what they had just seen. So he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? He's telling them and anyone who's listening, they are evil and you know they're evil, so when they talk you should at least be suspect. You cannot be evil and say good things. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he makes the application. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. But an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. And we're going to be judged for every idle word, he says. If your heart is corrupted by an ignorance of God's will or too much of an acquaintance with worldliness, you had better believe when you open your mouth that's what's going to come out. That's Jesus' point in Matthew the 15th chapter as he speaks about how we're not defiled with what goes into the mouth when they talked about eating with unwashed hands. But this is what he says in verse 18. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. And in chapter 3 of James, it talks about defiling the whole body. Whatever do you mean by that? He says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, And blasphemies, these are the things which defile the man. What do you mean by that? How in the world would that defile the whole body? Well, I'm going to tell you, an individual who's speaking about a brother or a sister in Christ, or just an individual, the enemies that we have overseas, and they're speaking hateful things about them, they're wishing ill upon them, they're maligning them, and they're not showing a love for them. They lack only opportunity to take their life. Hatred in the heart is just murder that has not manifested itself yet. And when you go see those dirty movies and you're cutting up with your friends at school and you're talking about all those dirty jokes, you're only lacking the opportunity to do what you're dreaming in your heart. It's only a matter of time. When you're speaking of the possessions of your neighbor, as the Ten Commandments puts it right along with coveting your neighbor's wife, all you lack is opportunity to take what isn't yours. When you're speaking slanderous things to others, you're in effect already blaspheming them. You only lack opportunity to really bring great injury to them. The heart is greatly significant when it comes to our speech, but it doesn't end there. If we're talking about these things, it means we're dwelling on them in our hearts, which is why we have no control over our speech, and we only lack opportunity to take the action that we're talking about. James talks about that in chapter 3. He gets to the point of talking about wisdom. He's really changed subjects. He's still talking about the warning to people who want to be teachers and they shouldn't be teachers because they're not mature. And they're going to cause a whole lot of problem. You can't take your words back. And there are people evidently who they want to appear to be wise and understanding. So what do they do? They take the pulpit instead of just living by God's word and working to gain a greater wisdom through it. So he says, don't, don't just become a teacher to show off. If you want to be wise and understanding, you want to show yourself to be godly, start living it first. Understand it and comprehend it before you start trying to be the master of it and teach it. Verse 14, then, he says this. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. What would you be, how would you be boasting and lying against the truth? I'm speaking the truth, but this is actually what my heart is. This is what my wisdom is. Don't you lie about that. Don't, don't you boast against the truth. Your wisdom has no chance against the wisdom of God and you have no place speaking your wisdom in this venue. In verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. Notice verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. You might ask the question, where's the heart controlling the tongue in this chapter? It's right here. He says, where envy and self-seeking exist, where do they exist? The self-sinking and envy exist in your hearts. And there's something that exists there with it in the heart. Confusion and every evil thing. That word confusion is very interesting. It's a katastasia. This is what Vine defines it as. Revolution or anarchy. Art and Gingrich gives this definition. Opposition to established authority, disorder, unruliness. Now we're talking about the teaching of God's word in context. And we're talking about the heavenly wisdom in contrast with the earthly wisdom. If you have this kind of wisdom, bitter envy and self-seeking, in your heart, you had better believe that contradiction to established authority, disorder, unruliness, anarchy of a spiritual nature, it's in your heart as well. If that's your wisdom, that is the fruit of your wisdom. And if that's in your heart, what are you going to be teaching? You see that? I'm going to be teaching God's Word. You're going to be teaching error. And it may not be that you're in the pulpit or you're talking to other people and, and you're just laced in your speech with profanity. You're not slandering everyone else. That's not the context. He's talking to me, brethren. He's talking to you, brethren. Are you cursing like a sailor every day? If you, if you are, you need to change. But that's not where this stops. We may have speech seasoned with salt as far as anyone else knows. We may think ourselves to be religious by the things we're saying. And as that corresponds to what we're doing, because it's in our hearts, we're going to do, if that's what we're saying, it's in our hearts, that's what we're going to do. But we deceive ourselves if our tongue is not bridled with heavenly wisdom from God and His Word. And so the effect of a heart with bitter envy and self-seeking and any other description of worldly wisdom is opposition to the authority of God. They're speaking what is contrary to God's Word. They're speaking deceptive error, that maybe even be deceiving themselves. They're speaking of man's wisdom and philosophy. They're speaking of traditions of men that they think that they're speaking right. They've got a lot of other people that think they know the Word of God, but all it is is self-deception because it cannot be proven in God's Word because it's not learned from God's Word. And so if you're talking about, this is where I get authority for this, and it has nothing to do with how the Scripture shows us we establish authority. I'll tell you right now, James is saying your religion is useless. That's what he's saying. If you don't know God's will, you're not convicted in your heart of God's will, certainly your speech is not going to line up with it. You know what? Your actions won't either. If you control the heart, though, you control the tongue, and you control the whole body. Your religion is pure and undefiled. Your actions are, are something which brings glory to God, that exhibits the life of Christ in your life. Why? Because I know the pattern, I know the word, and I speak the word, and I'm living the word. That's laced throughout Scripture. You've got a heart trained in God's word. Your speech will reflect it. Your actions will verify it. In Joshua, the first chapter in verse 8, shortly before filling the shoes of Moses, or at least trying to, you have a, 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 an exhortation throughout this given to him to be strong and courageous. Notice verse 8. The book of the law... Shall not depart from your mouth. It means you need to be talking about it to others, the children of Israel, your family, you and be talking to yourself about it. How's that going to happen? You shall meditate on it day and night. You see, you think about it. It's that mental chewing gum as I heard described before, and, and you're thinking about it all the time. So you're talking about it that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I think about it, it's in my heart. That's what comes out of my mouth. That's what I'm doing with my life. Psalm 119 in verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? Taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. My heart is trained. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. My heart is trained. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. Someone said, I really wish that I could know as much as that preacher, that I could have as much wisdom as that preacher, that I could, I could remember, remember Scripture like that preacher. Man, he just has a gift. No, he's been studying the Word of God for years and years and years. And so that's what comes out of his mouth. He says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts, contemplate your ways, delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And then in there in James chapter 1 and verse 19, you're swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. You receive with meekness the implanted word. So, so you're not talking. You're listening. You're receiving. And then you're doing. And the opposite of verse 26 would be true as well. You're speaking the word of God. But, but if you haven't done those first couple of steps, you would better believe your religion is useless. Because it's not coming from God's will. I want us to take a moment... To make a few applications. What religion is useless? Well James says it's the religion. That comes from one with an unbridled tongue. And we've already demonstrated. And I hope you got the point. That it's not just talking about profanity or slander. It's not talking about maligning our fellow man. It may be talking about one. Who by all appearances. And by all of You hear from them. That they are. A pure individual, a thoughtful individual, certainly a spiritually minded individual, but is their tongue bridled with God's will? Yes, they they seem to know the Scripture. They're at worship. They're not a worldly person. But does that mean what they're doing, their religion, is actually something that is pure and undefiled? You've got a host of people in the world. You've got a host of unsound churches full of people who have obeyed the Gospel. They've been baptized for the remission of their sins. They were added to the Lord's church, but they have apostatized, is their religion useless or is it pure and undefiled? It's useless if they're doing unauthorized things. So think about a few things that James points out. Firstly, useless religion that goes along with this unbridled tongue is doubting religion. And I hope that we were able to demonstrate that that's not simply doubting that God can or will or is willing to give us what we ask for. But that means I'm asking God, God, what is your will? I've already got my main mind made up, though. I've already decided. So it doesn't matter what I see in God's word. I'm going to find a way to kind of twist that and change that. You notice there, he says, let him ask in faith. And before he says that, he speaks about these trials testing our faith. And so our faith is tested. I go to God for wisdom to help my faith withstand. I ask in connection with and in the interest of my faith. And that's not just faith like the world thinks of it. There's a reason we quote Romans 10 and verse 17 all the time. It's faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Let me ask you something. If I'm asking for God's will and His direction, and it is with a conviction, a faith, a belief, a trust, that comes from hearing His Word, do you think I'm going to accept it when I see it in His Word? Yeah. If I'm doubting, if I'm vacillating in my mind, I've already got a way that I want to go. I'm going to be like that man in Luke the 10th chapter and in verse 29, when Jesus spoke the parable of the Good Samaritan, he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's asking God, literally, in the flesh, for wisdom. How do I apply this? Who's my neighbor? But he's doubting. He's not doubting that God has been clear in the law of Moses who the neighbor is. He's doubting in the sense of vacillating between actually accepting what the truth will be that's given to him and just justifying what he's already doing. And that's what Jesus or the, the Holy Spirit records there. And so you've got the appearance or even the, the interest of God's will when in reality you're searching to justify yourself and find your own will in the Scriptures. It's the end justifies the means religion. I know we've got to have command, example, and necessary inference for all that we do in Scripture. But look at the good that's accomplished by this. I have asked for wisdom with a doubting faith, which is no faith at all. That's the new hermeneutic that has been around for some time. Apparently it's resurfacing where we try to find, okay, I obviously can't establish what I want to do if we go by the methodology that has obviously revealed itself in Scripture. It doesn't come from man. It comes from God. Jesus used it himself. We see it time and time again. It's logic. It's good sense. It's what God has revealed. I know I can't establish authority for what I want to do this way. There must be another way of looking at it. And I think I'm religious. I think I'm right with God. I have found a way to verify what I'm doing. But it is useless. Just wait till Judgment Day and we'll see. You know, he addresses something else in chapter 2 and he's talking about faith, devoid of works, and how it's dead. He gives the demons as an example. He says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Again, remember, he's writing to Christians. They tremble. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29, Some demons said to Jesus, what have we to do with you, Jesus, the son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time when James says they tremble? Brethren, they tremble. This is not fake. And I would never suggest that the people who run high on emotions and think they're doing right because of how emotionally invested they are, that they're insincere, that their emotions are fake. I would never claim that at all. But emotional religion is useless religion. When the substance of your religion is your emotions, it's useless. And a lot of brethren conflate emotionalism with spiritual substance, and they emphasize the, the value of feelings over scripture. This is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 in verse 3, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers, turn their ears away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. This is where you can have a gospel meeting, and a congregation invites a preacher in who is known to just get up in the pulpit and give flimsy anecdotes and tell stories and it makes the, uh, the audience laugh. It makes the audience cry. It makes the audience shiver. And then they go away thinking that is the best sermon I've ever heard. They think they're edified. Emotional religion is useless. The demons trembled. They weren't serving God. They weren't right with God. It leads to the compromise on doctrine to to maintain a pseudo-unity or a a pseudo-love being expressed. We want people to feel good here, and we can't do that if we start preaching the truth on everything. Maybe we don't teach error on it. Maybe we just don't teach it at all. And now you have everyone's fake faith built on emotion completely devoid of substance. The cart has gone before the horse. That's useless religion. Emotion is from God. But it's only useful when it comes from the truth. Thirdly, he addresses a type of dualistic religion. In chapter 4, and verse 4, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? I sense a little sarcasm that you think God's... He, he's speaking in, in jest when he says that I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. When he says I am one God, serve me with your entire heart, soul, mind and strength. You think that he says that jokingly? You think he says that in vain, and yet you think that though you're going to worship and you're practicing this empty formalism, you're hearing the sermons, you're singing the songs, you're taking the Lord's Supper, but you're worldly when you leave the place, that you're right with God? Don't fool yourself. Yeah, you're a Christian. You're, you're part of a sound church. You're right insofar as the form of religion is concerned. But your heart is far from God. This one's religion. Is useless. And you know what that kind of religion sometimes does? The self deception comes from maybe confusing apostasy with never being there at all. Brethren, there are people in congregations across the landscape of God's kingdom who are physically present and couldn't be further away from the Lord. That's apostasy. People just don't know it. It matters not what you're doing outwardly if it's devoid of all inward intention, sincerity, and congruent with your faith on the outside of this place. And that's where we come in these compromising doctrines of man's nature being corrupted and this misunderstanding of God's grace. You know, Paul, when he's in Romans 6 and verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. He wasn't expecting them to say, yeah, that sounds good. He's saying that is unheard of. And I don't think any Christian would suggest that and believe that. They live it, though. You see, we're all in sin. Your sin is just different than mine. Why are we making this a big deal? We all are sinners. We're all corrupt. And that's what God's grace does. All that's saying is we're continuing in sin that grace may abound. And I want to tell you, brethren, that comes out of someone's mouth because their heart is untrained with the will of God. Their tongue, therefore, is unbridled. James says the religion is useless. Lastly, he speaks in chapter 4 and verse 11 what I would call of legislative religion. We're never supposed to be legislators in religion. God's already done that. But He speaks about some people who are acting in that way. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And it strikes me in this passage, and I hope it does you as well, that this is, again, not just gossip. It's not just... You know, you, you don't like that person, so you speak bad about him every chance you get when the subject comes up. Because in this text, he says, he who speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother also speaks evil of the law and judges the law. And that tells me something. I'm making a judgment on my brother or sister in Christ with something that does not come from the revelation of God's Word. And so I'm, in a sense, adding to God's Word. And when you add to God's Word... You judge it being insufficient. What we have here is not enough. And what does that look like? You know, we're all different in one degree or another. So, some of us restrict ourselves from doing some things that others do. And some of us do some things that others don't do. And that's fine and good. But this legislative religion, it shows inconsistencies with an understanding of authority in the pattern because it says... That something is dangerous to the degree of being sinful if you do it, even though God has not revealed anything to that degree. You know, there's people that need to be careful. There, there are some people who need to be a lot more careful about a certain sin than, than maybe I do, in the sense of I'm going to go beyond, above and beyond, to make sure that I don't go to the bottle again. If you're an alcoholic, you're probably going to be taking different routes to work than one, one who has no struggle with that at all. But when you start binding that, that's legislative religion. And you are judging the law as insufficient. Or maybe it says something that is helpful is sinful if you're not doing it just because I think that you should be doing it. But God's Word hasn't said anything to that degree. You think of dietary restrictions or education preferences. There's always been a debate among God's people, and it shouldn't be the case between public school and homeschool. And I've seen valid arguments on both sides of the fence. Brethren, God doesn't say a thing about it. How dare one side say the other side is not doing right before God, and vice versa, when God doesn't say anything about it. That's legislative religion. And you're acting as if you're more righteous than the other person. And since you can't show them that in Scripture, that's useless religion. Your tongue is not bridled by God's Word. We see an example of this in Romans 14. How dare you eat meat offered, or, or you eat meat, period, that was unclean before, or meat eat meat that was offered to idols that came from the marketplace, so on and so forth. And, and so you've got these things that God has said you can or you don't have to, but you're not better or worse for doing it or not doing it. And, and now you've got someone who is so convinced in their mind that this makes me better or this would make me worse, that now you are better or you are worse based on my judgment. How dare we do that? That's legislative religion. God has legislated. He's given us His Word. And if our mouths are filled with words that don't come from Scripture, cannot judge based on those thoughts. Our hearts seem to be bridled with God's Word. I want to tell you, if our hearts are bridled with God's Word, then we'll have incorruptible speech. We will be speaking the pattern of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13, and then you had better believe, since our hearts are filled with it and our speech is laced with it, then we will be holding fast in action to the pattern of sound words. We need to train our hearts. And, and if we don't, it's going to show, not just in our action, in our speech. That's, that's that first alarm bell going off. Don't speak if God has not said that that's true. We need to be always in line with His truth and make sure that what we're doing is revealed of Him. If you're here this morning and i have not obeyed the gospel, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. And, and what God has revealed is that He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. So, so if you're going on your feelings that, that you feel like you're saved and you haven't done what God's Word has said, it doesn't matter what speech you've heard, would verify that feeling. It's deception. It's false. It's useless. The only thing that verifies anything that we did as eternal and good and efficacious is God's word that revealed it. And that's what Jesus said. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, then you need to do so before it's everlastingly too late. We also extend the invitation to anyone here who is a Christian and who needs some encouragement or help in any spiritual matter. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.